Actually, I don't need this, right? It's good to be back amongst you between uh, work and uh, vacation and a couple Sundays out at uh, Mike Vanderlinden's church. It seems like it's been a while. Uh, I'm also very thankful because uh, I think in the intervening time, I heard that they wanted me to move to Albuquerque, and then they relented. So I was very thankful that we're able to spend uh, some time, more time amongst you. I, I think maybe sometime in the future, a year or so down the road, it might change, but at least for now, uh, we're very thankful that, that we don't have, have to move. Now this morning we'll be looking at Jeremiah 45, um, and this is going to be sort of a unique passage. It's going to be a prophecy to a single individual. Um, there are probably other places in Scripture where this happened, but it doesn't happen very often. And it's a prophecy to a person known as Baruch. Now, those who have been here for the last several weeks will probably pick out the name Baruch. He was mentioned back in chapter 32 as holding the title deed of land for Jeremiah. Uh, in 36, he played a very pivotal role uh, he wrote down the words of Jeremiah, and then when Jeremiah uh, was told that he couldn't speak in the temple, Baruch went and took uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah and proclaimed it uh, to the people in the temple. Um, and then there was a series of events after that. Uh, some scribes who heard him preaching the words of Jeremiah said, you know, uh-oh, this sounds bad. Can you read it to us again? Uh, and then when they heard it, they said, you know, you and Jeremiah better hide because the king is going to be out for you to kill you. And sure enough, the king went uh, searching for Jeremiah and Baruch to kill them, but God, uh, but God hid them. And so we see Baruch as a, as a faithful assistant to Jeremiah uh, throughout the narrative of the book of Jeremiah. And um, so that's the person who will be the subject of, um, of the sermon this morning. And um, so really sort of closed the chapter on Baruch after, and really also Jeremiah after this chapter, um, those two individuals aren't named in the narrative. Uh, there are prophecies from Jeremiah, and then there's a, a narrative section at the very end of Jeremiah. Um, but really, so the active tale of the events of their lives uh, ends in this chapter, and it's, some people view it as sort of a, a colophon, which is when scribes would conclude their writing, they would have a little section acknowledging uh, their contribution and, and a little bit about themselves. Um, but so this morning we'll be looking at uh, Jeremiah 45, and um, let's read now God's word. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. And what I have planted, I am plucking up, that is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? 
seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time in this word. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time to sit at your feet and hear from your word. Um, I pray that the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Affirm all that is true. Protect uh, all of us from any error. And we pray that uh, your words would go into our hearts to change our lives, uh, to help us see through the eyes of eyes of you, Lord. Um, so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, one of the things that you might have picked out from these uh, verses, just in this first reading, is the theme of perspective. Perspective can make all the difference in the world. I remember uh, I was on vacation in this little town, and there was this boy who was up in a second-story window, and he was sort of shouting all these insults at the people going by. And I was getting angry, and, and my sister could sort of see this, and he said, and she said, you know, John, uh, before you start getting too angry, this boy has Tourette's, all right? The, everyone in the town knows that this boy has Tourette's, and they try to warn the tourists, but this is just what his syndrome leads them to do. So before you get all angry, you know, just keep that in mind. And so I said, yeah, okay, I understand now. Uh, I was a little less angry. I was still a little bit angry because <laughs> he's very insulting. But the poor child, you know, had Tourette's syndrome, and apparently this was just a struggle in his life. Um, but uh, perspective, you know, if you think about your favorite book or your favorite movie, uh, that change of perspective or that plot twist um, can just sort of shock you, can sort of surprise you, and can change everything that you read before and everything that you, could, that you read after because of some uh, twi uh, twist of the plot or some reveal of an identity. Uh, I think of the movie Matrix. You know, that's sort of a famous one where this person's just going through their everyday life and then they're offered the opportunity to know you know, what the matrix is and the true reality of things. And it, it sort of shocks you. It kind of, kind of blew my mind when I first saw the movie. Uh, but until that point, you sort of, you know, sort of wondering, yeah, it's sort of boring life. Who's this guy? He's got some things on the side. Uh, or even, like, even in a much more tame manner, you know, Beauty of the Beast, if you think about, you know, in the beginning, the beast is this fearsome animal and everyone's scared of it. But as the story unfolds, you begin to get a little bit of perspective about who he is and what his history is, um, and maybe develop a little sympathy for him, and then you're so happy when he changes, and they all get married, and there's fireworks and everything, so. <laughs> perspective. Um, you know, perspective can take something like a skin blemish, you know, something like a mole, and they can turn it into a beauty mark if the person is regarded as beautiful. If you look at somebody with an irritating quirk, if that person becomes dear to you, well, then it's sort of a lovable idiosyncrasy, you know. It's not something that drives you crazy. It's just something that makes them uniquely them. Uh, perspective. Perspective can make an enormous difference in our lives. You know, do we struggle with maybe difficult children? 
Um, some couples pray to have even one child and struggle with infertility and the real challenges that, that are in place to adopt. Um, are we unhappy at work? Some people don't have a job and really don't even have any prospects. Even in the midst of the difficulties of, of this life, perspective can provide a balance and a wisdom uh, kind of to help ground us about really uh, where we are and what we're doing. For the Christian, a change in perspective is at the heart of our conversion. Uh, what is being born again if it doesn't involve seeing the world through new eyes? In Romans 12, we're challenged not to be conformed to this world, meaning the sort of the world pattern, the world perspective, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And a renewal of our mind enables us, in, amongst other things, to have a new perspective on life. But even if we have the right perspective, it doesn't stop us from struggling in the here and now, does it? It doesn't take away the real pain and suffering that comes to us when we're living in a broken world. How are, to we, how are we to live now with the difficult challenges of today? Well, God's uh, message to Baruch and Jeremiah gives us wisdom for the road. It gives us perspective. And we're going to address some other graces in this life that go along with this blessing of perspective. Um, but we'll see sort of three parts. Um, and perspective will be at the central, and we'll cover that last. So in this passage, we see first how Baruch receives the grace of God's perception, that is, you know, God sees us and hears us and cares about us. Uh, next, we'll see how uh, and talk about how Baruch receives the grace of God's provision to him in his hour of need. And third, we'll see how Baruch receives uh, the grace of God's perspective, which I think is sort of at the crux of this passage. So first, let's see how God receives the grace of God's perception God's perception, uh, what I mean by that is the fact that God hears us. He sees us. He cares about us. He attends to our needs. Um, if we read in verses uh, 1 through 3, uh, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Neriah, uh, Baruch the son of Neriah when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, woe is me. All right, so here we see that, that God has been listening to Baruch. Now, we don't know whether Baruch prayed these words to God in a prayer uh, or whether Baruch shared his sufferings with Jeremiah or perhaps another close and godly friend or whether God and his omniscience knew the thoughts of Baruch's heart. But we do know this, that God heard his cry. He wasn't deaf um, to the suffering of Baruch. And God hears our cry for help, too. Uh, in a verse uh, that's dear to my wife, Alex, Psalm 56, 8, it says of God, you have put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? God is watching over you. God perceives your suffering. He actually records them in a book. Your life matters to God. God puts your tears in a bottle because they're precious to him. Every tear that you cry is a tear shared by God because you belong to him and are beloved to him. 
in this psalm and many others, in Psalm 6 that we read this morning, we hear the cry of God's people, hear me, see me, come and save me out of the situation. God is a God who cares and acts and protects his people. We know that whatever hardships and difficulties lie along our road in this life, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We don't know the exact details of Baruch's suffering, but we know sort of the timing of God's word to him because in verse 1 we have what amounts to a time stamp. We read that this prophecy came in the fourth year of, Jim, uh, of King Jehoiakim uh, when Baruch was writing down um, Jeremiah's words as he was dictating them to Baruch. So this sort of takes us back several chapters earlier, actually to the beginning of chapter 36. Uh, and, and in this chapter, again, as I mentioned before, Baruch plays a prominent role. But it's important to note that this prophecy to Baruch, where he hears Baruch's lamentation, it came sort of be all, uh, before all these events took place. Um, actually, the, the passage conveys that, that this prophecy to, to Baruch was sort of taking right as he was in the midst of writing down uh, what Jeremiah was saying to him. So sort of like he's in the middle of work and Jeremiah is starting to prophesy to him. It's like, what, you know, me? Sort of unwanted, one of those cases of unwanted spotlight, perhaps. Um, so in Baruch's life, there will be many reasons to cry, woe is me. But at the time of this prophecy, these dramatic, literally death-defying deeds hadn't happened yet. If Baruch thought things were bad at the beginning of chapter 36, he was going to be in for a real time as things unfolded. Um, so at this point, you know, Baruch might have had more than a mere first world problem. Uh, perhaps some of you are familiar with that phrase. Uh, in the third world, you struggle with things like life and food and shelter. In the first world, you struggle with things like, is there anything good on cable tonight? Uh, can I get good service somewhere in this county? Um, first world problem. Um, so Baruch had more than that, but he only had a taste of the hardship to come. Nonetheless, at this point, God still heard him, and God still cares, and God acted. Uh, we don't have to be in a crisis. We don't have to be experiencing third world problems before God cares. God cares about us now. God cares about the small things in our life. And just as God acted for us, or acts for us now, God acted for Baruch. And sort of this leads us to the next, uh, the next aspect of God's grace in Baruch's life. Um, second and next, we sort of see the grace of God's provision. And I'm going to go a little bit out of order here for a reason, which I'll explain later. Um, God's grace of provision came into Baruch's life. Um, and we see this grace in the second half of verse 5. Um, but I will give your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. This promise sounds a little strange to us today. Like maybe, you know, prize of war. Sounds like something out of Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, like we're pirates booty on the Spanish main. Uh, but the idea is actually kind of the same. In the ancient world, the, the conquering army has one of its rights of conquest typically could take treasure from the defeated foe. Uh, this treasure, this prize of war, could take the form of gold and jewels or land or even people. 
So the picture we have here is of God sort of swooping in and snatching us up as a, as a prized possession. And so we are. Uh, Jesus, hailed as king on earth and in his church now, will return to swoop in and claim his people at the end of time, the second coming of Christ. We don't spend a lot of time talking about Christ's return. When we do, we often talk about topics that God intentionally shrouds in mystery and says are unknowable. But the theology of Christ's return has always been central to the teaching of the church from its earliest days. It's found in the ancient creeds and found extensively in the writings of the New Testament. But the promise to Baruch is more specific. It's relevant to the terms of his own life. God's provision is very specific to him. Baruch has lamented his fate and cried out to God for rest. In the cataclysm of events that will befall the kingdom of Judah during his time, and indeed that will befall many of the nations in the surrounding area, a life of rest and repose for Baruch is simply not in the cards. It's not on the menu, so to speak. God does, however, make a very special promise of provision to Baruch. He will be spared his life. That is about as much, that is about as much as his times will allow, considering all the mayhem and destruction around him. We don't know for sure, but it seems very plausible that after a brief time in Egypt, Baruch joined the exiled community of Jews in Babylon. Uh, after the events of chapters 36 to 45, and, and lived out his life there in that community. We don't know for sure. Uh, in this way, the, the figure of Baruch is sort of seen by some as a representative of a faithful remnant of God's people in a way so similar to Caleb and Joshua, who were allowed to enter the promised land after everyone else in their generation was not and perished in the wilderness. Um, Thinking of God's provision uh, takes me back to, to my mother. Uh, growing up, my mother would tell me a number of things about the faith, and one of them was that she had memorized uh, Psalm 23 as a child, and her mother and grandmother had helped her do that. Um, and that turned out to be very important for her because growing up, she really didn't have a father figure in her life. Her father left her and abandoned her mother at a, uh, really, almost even before she was born, uh, she had two stepfathers. Uh, after that, one of which was very sweet, but died fairly early on in her life. And another one who was very strange and foreign to her, and never, she were never really made a co co uh, connection with him. And so this idea of God as father and God's uh, provision was very uh, near and dear to us, to her. And I think that's why Psalm 23 is very popular with us today, you know, what's the first line from Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It speaks to God's provision in our lives. It speaks to the fact that he cares for us and provides us and fills our needs. God has a word of provision for Baruch in the midst of his suffering, and he has a word of provision for us. He'll come again someday at his return to take us to a new heavens and a new earth where Death and dying will pass away, and we can be with the Lord forever. Um, but until then, he's going to give us uh, the grace uh, that we can expect as we live through this life. And one of those graces will be the gift of perspective. 
sort of sandwiched in between the beginning of this chapter and the end of this chapter, sandwiched in between God's grace of perception, the fact that God sees and cares, and God's grace of provision is what I would term sort of a hard word from the Lord. Uh, what we see here is God's grace of perspective, and it might seem uh, sort of a severe mercy. In verses 4 and the beginning of 5, we read, Thus uh, says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am breaking down, and what I have planted I am plucking up, that is, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. So when we look at these verses, my first reaction is, this is a pretty heavy rebuke. And so they are. It sounds like Baruch has lost sight of what's important in the world around him, and he's been sort of focused on his own problems a little bit selfishly. And so he has. Um, sort of to take a, a little bit of lighthearted tack on this, it, it's sort of like the classic good news bad news situation. The good news for Baruch is he gets his very own chapter in the Bible and a personalized prophecy just for him, right? We're, we're all looking from a word from God to give us direction in our life. But the bad news is also that Baruch gets his very own chapter in the Bible and he gets his own very own personalized prophecy to him. Uh, we, you know, starting off the fact that it's located in the book of Jeremiah, you know that that's not a good sign. Uh, but it gets worse. It seems like this chapter is dedicated to putting Baruch in his place by rebuking him. And there is some of that. But let's not just stop there. Let's dig a little deeper. God isn't just being gratuitously grumpy about his lack of perspective. God has a purpose here. If we look at the verses, uh, the words in the verses 4 and 5, we see that they're very carefully crafted. Um, if you can, if you can think back to Jeremiah 1, you'll sort of have a ring of familiarity about these words. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, you may recall, God says to Jeremiah, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I see that I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. In verses 4 and 5 of Jeremiah chapter 45, we hear about the breaking down and the plucking up part, but we don't hear anything about God building and planting. It's a little disturbing because God's time of building and planting the nation of Israel has come to an end. And now there is only just the assurance of judgment on that nation. Baruch doesn't really perceive this turn in God's plans for Israel, but this is a very poignant moment for the heart of God. This job of building and planting a nation for himself, which God began over a thousand years earlier with Abraham in Genesis 12, is coming to an end. Yes, there will be a remnant. Yes, there will be still people who call upon the name of the Lord. And some of these people will eventually return to the land of Israel. But the original shape of the promise for the nation of Israel will be abandoned. And there will only be a faint glimmer of God's replacement plan, which is actually God's true plan A, 
Uh, only, only a glimmer of that can be seen by his people now uh, during Baruch's time. God wants Baruch to know that and care about that. We don't know exactly what great things Baruch was seeking for himself. He appears to have come from a family of notable officials uh, in the kingdom of Israel, and maybe he hoped for something similar for himself, a very successful uh, you know, career bureaucratic job with a safe pension and all. I don't know. Yet his pursuit of personal advancement in the context of coming disaster for Israel would be comical if it weren't such an offense to God, to be honest. In verses 4 and 5, we also see um, in these words a tie into the later chapters of Jeremiah. In verses 4 and 5, we read that God is bringing disaster on all flesh. This is a reference um, not only to the prophecies against the nations, which we'll read about in chapters 46 through 51 in the coming weeks, but it also is probably referring to the coming cataclysm of Christ's return to judge the world and all the people in it. In light of what is underfoot, Baruch needs a major course correction. And we can struggle with perspective as well, right? I mean, if even a good and humble servant like Baruch seems to be can stumble, so can we. God cares about our needs, big and small. God cares about scraped knees and frustrating spouses and irritating co-workers. But he also wants us to have perspective. God wants us to major on the majors and minor on the minors. God wants our hearts to be shaped by what's most important to him. If we pray to God for the little needs of daily life, he's pleased to look down and answer us. But he doesn't want us to just stop there, to stop at only our personal needs. And this is why I've gone out of order and discussed this uh, final aspect of God's grace to Baruch, God's grace of perspective uh, last. Because I believe it lies at the crux of the matter. Baruch was a, relatively, was a relative small fry in the grand scope of things that were unfolding in the book of Jeremiah. Why did God take time to single him out for this word of prophecy? Would it really matter? Would it affect the, the trajectory of God's judgment on the nation of Israel or the fate of Jerusalem? Or even on this transmission of the, of the book of Jeremiah where Baruch served as scribe? Would it matter if he performed this role with a bad perspective or selfish motives or with a bad heart? Uh, maybe not. In human terms, most likely not. But God cared about whether Baruch did his job, however minor it might be, from a biblical perspective, illuminated by the character of God, he cared that Baruch did his job with a right heart. God was not satisfied with mere perfunctory performance of the letter of the law. God cared about the condition of Baruch's heart. God wanted Baruch to receive this blessing of doing his job in the light of the grace of God's perspective. And for you and me, brothers and sisters, God doesn't want your duty and obedience unless God first, first has your heart. How many of us have gone through times in our lives when we were just going through the motions but 
our hearts weren't really in it. That's a dangerous place to be. That's a place of burnout. That's a place of falling away from God. Instead, God wants our hearts to be aflame with a love for God and for his world, and especially the people in his world. The weapons that we bring to the spiritual warfare that we conduct for the hearts and minds of the world around us, the people around us, are the weapons of love and patience and humility, the weapons that are shaped by God's perspective of his world, of, of his love for this world. We see them in the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do we see on that list opportunistic pragmatism? No. Do we see hatred of those other people that get in our way? No, we don't see that on lists. Do we see, do we see uh, the ends justify the means? No, we don't see those things. And that's because God's work needs to be done God's way. Baruch could write down the words with a bitter heart towards God, but God didn't want that. God cares about the heart. God cares about the soul. That's what's going to last into eternity, human souls. God cared about Baruch's heart as he went about his work in the world. And he cares about how we put our heart into the work that God has appointed for us. Whether it's a task great or small, if it's done God's way, then it will receive God's smile. And what matters more than that? That's why understanding God's perspective matters matters. That's food for the soul. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. Your smile means more to us than anything on this earth, but we have trouble sometimes, Lord. We have trouble with perspective. We don't want to just go through the motions of life. We want our life to be animated by your perspective, by a love for you and the people around us, especially for those who are spiritual needy. It's hard, Father, but break our hearts. Help us overcome our self-centeredness and selfishness. Help us overcome our preoccupation with ourselves. Father, we're humbled by what we can do with our own meager efforts but we're confident by what you can do, by what you're powerful to do in this world. Let it start with a work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a good word from God's word, his benediction from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you.